You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Hello and welcome to this, our second special edition of Inspired to Act. Inspired to Act continues to evoke a number of inquiries from our listening audience of healthcare professionals. I'm gratified by this response and will endeavor to answer questions periodically that you have mailed or sent to the program. You can email questions for a future program to inspired at reachmd.com. Here's the first question. We have a 70-year-old male who presented with a right foot drop. The workup revealed ALS. Is there anything new on the horizon that appears promising therapy? And could you give your views about alternative medicine for ALS? Well, ALS is one of the toughest nuts to crack in all of medicine, certainly in neurological medicine. It's the name amyotrophic lateral sclerosis that was given by Jean-Martin Charcot for the most common of the so-called motor neuron diseases. So this is a disorder of motor neurons. It affects both the upper motor neurons, those in the cerebral cortex, and those in the lower motor neurons down in the spinal cord and the brainstem. And it produces a relentless, slowly advancing syndrome of weakness, usually starting asymmetrically and then spreading gradually to ultimately affect virtually all the muscles of the body, sparing really only the eye movements. It's a terrible thing, of course, because it uh, paralyzes people, leaves, leaves their cognition intact. And there's been an enormous effort to try to find a treatment. And I can say uh, at this moment in time, there isn't a real treatment that I would say passes the test of what we would call evidence-based medicine. There is one drug, a drug called Riliazole, which works on the NMDA receptor. That's the N-methyl deaspartase receptor. It's one of the excitatory receptors for glutamate in the nervous system. And this drug works there to try to reduce what's called excitotoxicity, toxicity due to the release of this excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate. The drug works a little bit, has a very slight effect on the disease, but not very dramatic. There have been other fits and starts. Not too long ago, it appeared that lithium might be beneficial in ALS, but unfortunately, that really hasn't worked out yet. I would say the best hope for an ALS patient these days is to go to one of the centers where the disease is being treated and get involved in a rational and safe therapeutic trial. And there are a number of places like that around the country. There are a number of legitimate leaders in ALS research who are working on uh, genetic cures that probably will uh, happen, I hope, in the future, but at the moment we don't have a released form of therapy. As far as alternative uh, medications are concerned, I would say the same thing about ALS as I would say about alternative drugs in any setting. Provided that they're not dangerous, I don't see anything wrong with using certain alternative techniques, but it isn't necessarily true that an alternative technique is not dangerous. Some drugs and herbs can be dangerous. And so I would recommend that somebody who's considering alternative therapies to go to the NIH website for alternative therapies and see if the drug is considered safe. If it's considered safe, I don't see anything wrong with using it, but I would say realistically, it's unlikely to have a beneficial effect on on motor neuron disease, the most common form of which is ALS. So let's go on with the next question. Next question. A 34-year-old male who is currently in the medical ICU is suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome. He's received IVIG for five days, had a tracheostomy, 
and is on the ventilator. What is his prognosis? Well, this disease, Guillain-Barre syndrome, is a neuropathy, an acute demyelinating neuropathy, which actually has a very, very good long-term prognosis. In fact, rule of thumb to remember is that about 95% of people with Guillain-Barre syndrome will improve to 95% or better of their original function. So that's a very good prognosis. However, it takes a long time to recover for Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the reason for that is that some nerves that are demyelinated by this disease are very, very long. So if you think for a moment about the nerves that come from and lead to the big toe, these are about three feet long nerves. If they become demyelinated, it can take a year or longer for them to become remyelinated. And even though they ultimately might function very well, one has to be very, very patient. You need a very, very cautious and careful approach to physical therapy and rehabilitation during that time. This particular patient that you uh, present, I think would benefit from a course of plasmapheresis, which is our other main treatment other than intravenous immunoglobulin that we use for Guillain-Barre syndrome. So once we've given a course of intravenous immunoglobulin, if we find that the patient is recurring or not improving, we'll usually give them five or six or seven plasmapheresis exchanges and try to get them on the road to recovery. But remember, it can take a long, long time. One has to be patient and encourage these people because obviously you can become quite depressed lying there almost paralyzed with this disease. But in fact, if we stick with it, almost everybody will have a dramatic improvement. Most people will be back to virtually normal. So let's move on with our questions. Multiple studies suggest that exercise may prevent or delay the progression of disability in Parkinson's disease. Do you agree with this? And if you do, are all aerobic exercises beneficial? Well, I think there's no doubt, based on pretty good evidence, that staying active slows the rate of worsening of neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. Now, how it actually works is unknown. I personally don't believe there's any direct effect on the underlying disease process itself, that is, the death of neurons in the substantia nigra of the brain. I think that continues on. But the brain has many, many other mechanisms for taking over when certain systems fail, and exercising those systems seems to help. So there's no doubt that it is helpful to exercise. At this point in time, I would say there's no satisfactory evidence to allow us to decide what form of exercise might be better than another form of exercise in a situation like this. So whether to do aerobic exercise or anaerobic exercise, that hasn't been studied. Probably something worth studying, but it hasn't been studied yet. So I would just tell people, as I do to my patients, try to stay active without exhausting yourself. So walk, swim, and, and some people with Parkinson's disease, you may find this surprising, can run. They can jog in ways which are very similar to the way they used to be able to jog. So I say as, as long as people can stay active, they should stay active. It probably does slow the rate of worsening. It probably doesn't reverse the underlying pathophysiology. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a special edition of Inspired to Act on ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels answering inquiries and questions that have been sent in or emailed to us here at ReachMD by you, the healthcare professionals that make up our listening audience. So let's move on with our next question. Is sleep apnea in a non-obese, non-hypertensive, non-comorbid individual neurologically mediated? And what's the recommended treatment for this condition? Well, I think it's important to understand that not all forms of apnea during sleep are due to obstructive apnea. Obstructive apnea is probably partly a neurological condition, but is probably also a respiratory condition and related to the shape, the natural shape of the person's oropharynx and airway. 
But many other kinds of apneas are centrally mediated, so that one has to be certain to not casually talk about apneas, all of them, as if they were obstructive apneas. Some of them are obstructive apneas, and most of those will respond to uh, physical maneuvers like uh, giving people continuous positive airway pressure, so-called CPAP, when they're trying to sleep at night. This physically opens the airway, helps them breathe, stops all the awakenings that occur during the night, and helps them with their excessive daytime sleepiness. But there are primary apneas, which can occur during sleep. This can occur as a congenital disease. It can occur as an acquired illness in people with small strokes in the respiratory control centers of the brainstem. So when carrying out a sleep study on somebody who has apnea, it's very important to ask the sleep specialist to distinguish between primary sleep apneas and obstructive sleep apneas, and that'll help us to decide what therapy to embark upon. So let's go on with our next uh, question, please. A patient with illicit substance abuse gets seizures when intoxicated or going through withdrawal. What is the treatment protocol or the guidelines using any epileptics? Well, anti-epileptic drugs are generally used for epilepsy, not just for isolated seizures. So, and that's why we call them anti-epileptic drugs. Those of you who are listening who are a little older, remember that we used to call these drugs anticonvulsant drugs, that is, drugs like phenytoin and phenobarbital and the like. Recently, we've changed that term and call them anti-epileptic drugs because we want to emphasize to practitioners that they're really for epilepsy. You remember what epilepsy is. Epilepsy is a tendency for recurrent, unprovoked seizures. It isn't just one seizure or a couple of seizures. We don't, for example, refer to alcohol withdrawal seizures as epilepsy. Those are induced seizures by alcohol withdrawal. And the same would be true with stimulant drugs. So a seizure that occurred in the context of using cocaine or methamphetamine, that would not be called epilepsy. It would be called a seizure caused by cocaine or methamphetamine. We don't generally use anti-epileptic drugs to treat anything but epilepsy, recurrent, unprovoked seizures. But there's a few exceptions to this. If you're faced with somebody who's having serious seizures, even though you don't think they're an epileptic, in the context of the use of an illicit agent of some kind, there's nothing wrong with a short course of an anti-epileptic drug. The only caveat, of course, is that you have to use one that you can give intravenously, that you can get to a high and effective level quickly and safely. And in fact, a number of these drugs are now available in intravenous form, but the truth is that phenytoin, one of our oldest ones, invented in the 1930s, is really one of the easiest ones to use in this context. If you want to stop seizures quickly, you can give a person phenytoin intravenously, get them into therapeutic range within 15 or 20 minutes, and just keep the drug on for as long as the risk is there. So when they stop using the drugs or the withdrawal seizures are over, you can just discontinue the uh, phenytoin. So I would say that we can use it, and we do use it occasionally, but in general, we reserve anti-epileptic drugs for recurrent unprovoked seizures. Do you have any comments about the efficacy of currently available medications for Alzheimer's disease? especially with regard to donepezil and memantine. And the patient in mind is an elderly female who suffers from mild hypertension and type 2 diabetes, which are both well-controlled. Well, the drugs for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia, all work about the same. That is, their efficacy is about the same. There's only two classes of drugs that have been released by the the FDA for this purpose. The first are the anticholinesterase drugs. Donepezil is an example of one of three of these anticholinesterase drugs that can be used 
for this indication. And another are the drugs that block the NMDA receptor, the N-methyldiaspartase glutamate receptor. The concept there is that there might be excitotoxicity going on in dementias like Alzheimer's disease, and we might be able to prevent it with memantine, which is the only drug in that category that is so far released by the FDA. So we have two categories of drugs. We have the anticholinesterase drugs, Denepazil is an example of that. And we have these NMDA receptor blockers. Memantine is currently the only released example of that. These drugs both work, but they work very, very little. That is, they, they reduce the degree of memory disturbance to uh, testing, to laboratory testing, but really most families can't tell the difference. And the reason they can't tell the difference is that, of course, they're looking for improvement, and these drugs don't cause improvement. All they do is very slightly slow the rate of decline. And that's true of all these drugs in both categories. That's all we have time for this week. If you have questions for us, please send them to my attention, Dr. Martin Samuels, and email them to inspired at reachmd.com. That's inspired at reachmd.com. And thanks so much for listening to Inspired to Act. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels, and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day -day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. PrimeMed CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live, because you like to interact with peers and faculty, Online, because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule. And in print, because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, PrimeMed delivers knowledge that touches patients. PrimeMed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300-plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PrimeMed as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PrimeMed online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. Thank you for learning with PrimeMed.